Yes, we have archives. We have uh, basically there is a database. I mean, if you can go, you can go to the IETF data tracker, and for each document, it will tell you that it was uh, entered in the first version at this date, and then it progressed for a couple of revisions, and then something happened, and then uh, eventually it went to the IESG and was approved and was published. But there are intermediate steps. And uh, I wanted to first look at which of those steps took a long time. And so I started with the uh, data tracker data, but it could be automated, but I, I would not want to start by automating. I wanted to start by analyzing. And so I took 20 samples. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Christian Wittemer, who is currently based in Seattle. Aside from working on things like Terado, Microsoft's IPv6 transition technology, and design of the Quick Protocol, Christian has been working on something a bit more meta, an assessment of how well the IETF performs as a standards development body. Hello, everyone. I'm joined today by Christian Wittemer, who is going to talk to us a little bit about a measurement activity he's been doing. Now, normally on Ping, we're talking about protocol measurement, aspects of how technology works as a system, things that we can do in protocol to look at that. And indeed, Christian does do that. He has been looking at behaviors of protocols like Quick. But the reason I asked him to come and talk to us today is not because of that. It's because of a different kind of measurement that he's been doing, which we will come to shortly. Before we begin, Christian, could you introduce yourselves briefly to people? I'll try to be brief. I've been working in this uh, internet thing for many years now, through the 80s and 90s and uh, up to now. I could have retired a couple of years ago, but I decided that uh, I would just be myself, be independent and work on whatever I please. And whatever I please, as you said, involved I me mean, working on quick, working on uh, privacy, and uh, working with the IETF. And that's how I came to work on measuring the IETF. So this is the key reason that I asked if you would talk to us today. The IETF is this amazing place that we all revere highly and we go to great lengths to talk about the supremacy of the RFC development process and how much we value this activity. And what you have been doing, in effect, is measuring how well we do at producing these documents. Yes, I was in discussion. I mean, four years ago, I rejoined the IAB briefly, only stayed there for two years. But during one of the retreats of the IAB, was they were asking questions. And clearly, they were rumbling that uh, it takes a long time to get an RFC. Could we be more efficient? What could we change? And people were going on saying, hey, maybe we shall uh, hire more editors, or maybe we shall streamline this and that review process or whatever. And there were very little data. The discussion was largely based on anecdotes and uh, 
And we are in an industry where we know very well that if you base your technology decision on anecdotes, you end up missing the mark. And so I decided, hey, can I do something? Can I do a measurement there to see what's uh, going on? And indeed, what's going on was not exactly what the anecdotes were saying. So the problem space here is that the IAB has some overarching responsibility to try and steer process towards an amicable outcome. It's IESG is much more process-centric at individual documents. Is this draft ready to proceed? IAB is kind of the meta layer one up saying, yes, but is this productive labor? Are we doing things that are useful endeavors? Yeah, I mean, uh, the division of power between the IESG and the IAB, you could do another podcast about that. It's, it's largely up for grab. But I was thinking, let's say, can I do something useful there? Yeah, and the question that came to mind was, how are we doing producing these standards documents? Yes, and so I was saying, hey, clearly when you are measuring something for the first time, you want first to do an exploration of the space and say, what is it? And so what I wanted to do is say, hey, let's do a sampling because I was not equipped to capture all the data. So basically I say, hey, let's do a sampling test. Look at the life of an RFC from the moment it starts, from the moment it finishes. Well, the moment it's published, it's never quite finished because it can be revised. So something people may not appreciate who are coming new into this framework is that the basic metrics here about admission of documents into process, their lifetime through various formalisms of versioning, their acceptance into a publication queue, their progression and their publication, and then the subsequent BIS process is actually at some level already measured, not in the sense that anyone is looking at it, but the timestamps for the transitional events within limits has been kept as part of the history of the document. Yes, we have archives. We have uh, basically, there's a database. You can go to the IETF data tracker, and for each document, it will tell you that it was uh, entered in the first version at this date, and then it progressed for a couple of revisions, and then something happened, and then uh, eventually it went to the IESG and was approved and was published. But there are intermediate steps, and uh, I wanted to first look at which of those steps took a long time. And so I started with the uh, data tracker data, but it could be automated, but I, I would not want to start by automating. I wanted to start by analyzing. And so I took 20 samples. How did you determine which documents to take here? Was this a random selection? It was a random selection. I was careful to actually use one of these MD5 uh, things that... Uh, take some kind of seed and you look at what you pick out of that. Yeah. So you tried very hard not to bias the input set because there are certainly spaces in the IETF. I could hypothesize the SNMP MIB arc where it is an incredibly well understood process. Send in a MIB, revise the MIB, working group last call, publish, compared to say a proposal in IPv6 to implement a new extension header that could spend months 
arguing over tiny little differences of opinion. So I, I think the fact that you made a random selection is very important. Yes. And also, it was a random selection that tested the two paths in the ITF, the standard path and the individual path. Right. Again, for people who don't understand, a formalism in current IETF praxis is that documents vest in a working group and conform to some sense of purpose and direction in a working group charter. But from time to time, it's just not possible to make a document fit that framework. It may be about personality, it may be about structural behavior. And so an independent stream is the mechanism that means there is a basis for work to be done outside working group formalism. Yeah. And so that's what I did. I picked those 20 RFCs at random and I did that completely manually with a notebook. Actually, I fed the data in an Excel spreadsheet, but uh, it was very manual. And I was looking at, okay, when was the first time someone had the ID that was then published? And you can track that by looking at the first individual draft that contributed to that RFC. And so so the, the draft that may not even yet have working group adoption that comes out as a formalism by name, not necessarily tagged as a working group item, and then becomes the zero draft of a working group item. Is that what you were tracking? Yes. I mean, basically, for example, if you look at something like uh, Teredo, for example, that I did, it will be the, the very first draft that was called Vitema IPVC Shipworm or something like that. Yeah. But you can get that. And then, then some guy has an ID and then he gets feedback and then he revises it and then he socializes it. And, and for the uh, next five IETFs, somebody says, tunnels are bad, tunnels are bad, at the well, microphone. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> but you wanted to, basically, I wanted to have a start, okay? Yeah. So that's as a start. And then there's the, the next stage, which I did not actually track in my study, but the next stage is when it comes from individual draft to working group draft. And in my study, I kind of missed that. I mean, I look at the end and say, hey, I should have paid more attention to this one. There was a prejudice part. I mean, I was not too concerned about that because at the time, we really believed that the delays were the tail of the process. Hmm. So, so this, is, this is a bit of a story in hindsight that says when you yes. get to the end of a measurement, sometimes you realize there are things you maybe should have been looking at at the beginning. Yep. And that's okay because I really wanted to do an exploratory work. Yep. So basically, I took say, the first step is it goes in the working group as a proposition. Next step is the working group has converged and is the last call for the document, the working group last call has been issued. It can go and through many, many variants of revision between yes. those two stages. It can have a long life. But I think. In process terms, that's an admission of complexity or disagreement towards consensus. And in some senses, you cannot shorten this. To argue that well-formed proposals must automatically have a short lifetime in a working group, I don't think would fly. So to some extent, that period of time in the working group, well, it's very 
variable. You don't control the legitimate questions around what is a consensus in this document. That is true. I mean, and that's the reason why I wanted to take the hard point. And the hard point is the start and the end of the process, which is what yep. document. So working and group last call, we're canvassing the room. Are we all of agreement that with m small changes, this document is ready to push to the next stage? Yes, and the next stage is basically propose it to the IESG for publication. Yeah. And what the IESG does in that case, when there are cases in which the IEC will just say no and say, you must fix this and that before we proceed. But in most cases, what the IESG does is issue the IETF last call. And the purpose of the IETF last call is to say, okay, these working group believe they are done. But what do other people think about it? Is there something that they might have missed because they were concerned into building the best possible tunnel, but people don't like tunnels or whatever? Yeah. And that working group last call is very, very formal now because it automatically triggers security review, application layer review, DNS director net review, network management review, DNS, yeah. etc. So basically, when you issue the last call, everybody may have feedback and some people will have, but also you have this very formal process by which uh, we pull a number of directories and each of them picks an expert and the expert makes a report. And so that takes time. The last call itself is supposed to last two weeks. Reports done. <laughs> two weeks! <laughs> Excuse me. No, the formal thing of, of the last right. call is between the time the IAG sends their email and the time they are saying, okay, we have the, collected the feedback. It's supposed to take two weeks. They might take a little bit more, but that part is not stretching a whole lot. Then uh, once they have this report, there is some kind of a report there. And then there will be an ISG vote at the next meeting. And yes, as you said, the next meeting may be a bit more than two weeks later. And sometimes the ISG just says no and it goes back to the working group and the working group works again. And it's basically another last call and another submission, etc. It arrives rarely. I think in my sample, it might have arrived couple of times, like one or two out of 20. And then the ISG does that. The ISG typically has feedback. They want to have this text or that text change, update, etc. So it takes time for the editors of the document to come back to the ISG with their changes and say, hey, here we are. And so you can measure that because at some point, the ISG will say, yes, we have approved the draft. And we are sending that to the editor. So it's a formally recognized checkpoint that's available to you as a timed point in Data Tracker. Yes. One of the difficulties in using Data Tracker data is that there are a lot of possible things, like issuing this vote, that vote, etc. But they are not hard points. I mean, they are not present for all documents, etc. So if we want to align, there is basically the working group is done, the IESG has issued a last call. The ISG has issued an approval. Then the document goes to the editor. At that point, you have the edition process 
which takes time. You have to copy editing, you have uh, all these uh, verification. From my personal experience, the number of points of interest that can be picked up late during that edit is non-zero. So despite all these stages of review, even at closure, the editors are finding things that they feel they have to say. Do you really mean what you're saying here? Yes, and we can measure that. We can measure that because that's the time between the submission to the editor and when the editor is done, you have something called the author 48 hours warning. Yeah. Which is basically, in theory, supposed to last just two days, as the name says. And it's for the author to read again what the editor has produced and say whether all is clear and they approve and yes, you can print that. Or maybe they have a last-minute correction to do. Which resets the author 48 clock. So it's a 48 hours to circle back and inch forward and 48 hours to circle back and inch forward again. It's a progression of inches through successive author 48 spins. Yeah, and it varies. And sometimes the smallest delay I've seen was not 48 hours, but some do it in four or five days. Yeah. And getting closure in a group of people is just hard. It's logistically yeah. hard. 48 hours seems like a long span of time, but in the world, the reality is a critical author may simply be unavailable for more than 48 hours. And sometimes it lasts two months. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so all of and this from 20 random samples and a hand exercise in a notebook and Excel looking at these critical time points. And yes. we have still only just hit edit. You have edit. And then once the uh, O48 is approved, then you have a formal publication process, which says basically, which is the mechanics of uh, publishing that in the databases, etc. Yeah. You must have so many points in this story that potentially are flags to process issues we could be talking about. Yes. And in fact, the uh, initial concern we are looking at was that the time between IESG approval and, in fact, uh, the, the end of the edition process, old 48, was, I mean, some people felt it was too long. I mean, the queues were building. Remember, it was a time where we were trying to get the new RFC format. Yeah. And so that, that was a bit randomizing the RFC editor. There are things like that. And so there was this concern that was floating around that basically we, we have to measure that. There were lots of anecdotes of, uh, I mean, mm. particular documents that will take a very long time. And one of the conclusions of RFC was that, no, not really. I mean, if we look at the end-to-end -end delay, from the start of the ID to the publication, it'll be three to four years. Now, to me, that is a confrontingly large number. And I come at this with a similar burden to you, that I've been involved in this endeavor for the last 20 years. You have more history depth than I do. But across the period of time and in the time before, I worked in other standards organizations. I had a review function in CCITT, 
ITU standards preparation. And that was a four-year working cycle. And so to hear that IETF has arrived at a four-year cycle is quite deflating to my sense of we are better because in practice what you have just said is we are exactly the same maybe and maybe not and probably not for the same reasons it turns out that the formal part of the process the uh, ietf last call the isg reviews the uh, rfc editor thing account for just a small fraction of those three years maybe it accounts for six months or eight months something like that max so that was my main conclusion, which was at that point. Okay. The formalisms that we have adopted as a check process to confirm inter-area alignment, questions and considerations from subject matter specialists, yes. review against architectural goals that people thought we must improve are contributing perhaps six months out of three to four years, which does not yeah. represent a majority. Yes. That is quite interesting. Arguably, we are more efficient than we think we are. And still, things could be uh, improved there a little bit, but that process is also quite valuable. Yeah. It I is valuable that no RFC comes out without a security review. And things like that. It is valuable that you have copy editing so that everybody can read the document. Yeah. It feels like we have, at some sense, judged ourselves against a behavior from simpler days, from days when an IETF was a smaller group of people and convergence amongst people was mechanistically easier because there were just less thought people and less things being done. So I tried to measure that too. Once I was done with a sample of 20 RFCs from that was uh, 2018 that I picked, I say, okay, let's go back and look at the year 2008 and the year 1998. And I did apply the same random sampling process and I pick 20 in, 20, uh, in 2008 and 20 in 1998. And I looked at the delays and well, by and large, 2008 looked very much like 2018. So belief again, because I am, like many people, prone to thinking, I have formidable intellect, I know what you will find. I knew that you would find we are ossifying now and we are getting slower now. And of course, I'm wrong. What you're saying is we've been like this for 10 years. If not more, because I mean, the other data point is 1998. And yes, 1998 was sensibly much faster. I mean, the duration was not three to four years. It was by and large two years. That's quite a significant difference. So an earlier stage of life when we formed our ideas of what an IETF is, what a document production process is, has a two-year lifetime to produce an outcome, roll it forward with the same actors, and we are now taking three to four years, so between 50% and 100% extra burden. And emotionally, I would be drawn to say we're worse. But the observation you made, these are important checks, stands, because many of the documents we produce now are, at some extent, revisions and functional improvements on documents we wrote then. 
Perhaps yes. the documents we wrote then were not adequately reviewed. There were, I think, two things happened. If you remember the 90s, I mean... A little bit. The development of the internet in the 90s, that was a blast. I mean, the, the network was pretty much doubling its size every year. The traffic was going even faster than that because the traffic increased more than proportionally with the number of people on the network. So, I mean, everything followed. I mean, that's basically, you had tons of problems that had to be solved. So there was urgency in solving them because if you don't solve them now, there's so much growth going on that something is going to break. So this time pressure, which was much more intense then than now. You also had the, uh, a different kind of industry. Mm. I mean, if you look at uh, the industry at the time, there are lots of startups. I mean, 98, Google did not even exist. Okay. Uh, Cisco was big, yes. A bunch of other startup writing companies coming up. There were very, there are small ISPs, but the ISP, they were there. They were very competitive. Yeah. So we had an atmosphere that was more conducive to move fast and break things, approaches to problem solvings, perhaps. We were more amenable to trying things that might not work or might require revision. I don't think that we are trying to break stuff. I think that uh, we were, as it was the urgency. Take the example of something like before. I mean, the internet was going so fast that the previous version of BGP was just not working very well anymore. So you wanted to revise it so that it actually works. So you're not in the process of breaking things, you're probably fixing things. But also with a sense of urgency, it needs to be done now. Yes. And so there was the two tension. You wanted to do it right, but you wanted to do it now. And okay, there is a trade-off, but... The other part of the trade-off is that because all those folks in the working groups wanted to fix the internet, they were more prone to basically reach consensus and say, yeah, it works good enough, let's do that. In a growth time, it's quite easy in some ways to project my overall market share against the growing market isn't as important as growing the market. And so the risks inherent in making a decision that benefits everyone to some degree might be less because the market is growing. We yeah. are now in a mature stage market. Penetration in most Western economies is maximum. And so decisions of consensus no longer necessarily face future growing market. It is a return to market share. Does it advantage me may have come back into the room? Maybe. Maybe. I think there is something else going on. The something else going on is that we now have, I mean, neither has won, right? In the 90s, there was one big thing, like, look at the development of internet telephony in the 90s. It was this upstart internet taking over telephony from these stodgy old telecommunication companies. Okay, fast forward 20 years. What do we see? The one big telecommunication companies that have survived are now internet companies. They have competition because they are not the only internet companies, but basically, the internet companies that we have now 
of pretty much the size that the telecommunication companies had 20 years ago. And if they have the same size, well, maybe they are good at organizing, but with size comes some level of bureaucracy and slowness. So there is that. So there is not that much urgency. They want to improve. I mean, they have the cycles, but if you look at the cycles going from 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, etc., but they are very slow. I mean, if you look at the, the actual technology going on, it's it looks like more of the same, better radios, better throughput, but basically it's something that's not comparable to what was happening in the 90s, in which the speed at which people were walking was big. I mean, people would go from a link at 1 megabit to 30 megabit to 100 megabit to gigabit to 10 gigabit. I mean, it was bang, 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 bang. We don't yeah, see whereas, it anymore. No, we don't. And we also yeah. look now more carefully at capital investment consequences for a G roll. So rolling from 2G to 3G was quite significant in capital investment. Quite a few people in my space who had an interest in IPv6 were dismayed by how V6 was essentially an adjunct of 3 and not something integrated into 3G deployment. Looking at 3G to 4G, V6 actually became in some senses more than a checkbox and became part of 4G deployment in many economies. So some things that for us have taken almost decades to happen collided with capital investment cycles that work quite nicely. But it's still very hard to look at that and say, four years, four years to make a significant amendment of four years. I looked at the development of Quick, for example, which is a pretty big achievement in the ATF, the combination of TLS 1.3 and Quick. The work started with Google making prototypes in 2013 about they brought it to the ATF in 2016. The ATF started to work seriously with it in 2017. It was published in 2021. And across that time, some quite significant things happened in Quick. We had questions around whether it had to do MTU sensing and have variable MTU behavior. The Quick we have now has just settled on a, a rigid number. It simplified some aspects of that. We had the emergence of the spin bit and questions around the ability to leak little bits of information outside of a TLS protected protocol to help people with rate measurement and with capacity planning. So quick grew things, but it also simplified. And to me, that's fascinating because what Google brought to the table was not a theoretical design. They had running code. Yes, they did have following code, but they uh, also, there were some big changes, okay? And the one big changes is that Google, in their quick development, had an ad hoc security process. They were not using TLS. They were using some kind of internal development. And basically, replacing that by TLS was a big, big improvement in security and also in maintainability. Because they, you have a huge investment in these protocols in terms of formal proof and things like that. So you want to do that once for TLS and reuse it. So that was one of the big reasons for the delay, integrating all that. And if you think about quick coming into a process like IETF, it is a transport protocol. 
the transport part was not the hardest. I mean, no, it, but that is the entry point into our yes. work streaming. Yes. But the TLS component, that's in security. So these directorates and the sense of logical separation and specialist groups come to play in this space. That particular process was very interesting because you had effectively people from security, people from transport, and people from applications playing together. The security part was enormous. I mean, there was lots of the other part of work that changed from the Google design was a huge investment on privacy and basically little details that what kind of metadata do you leak and, and things like that. That took a long time. And then there are other things. But I mean, I don't want necessarily to speak just about Quick, but just to say No, that- but it's quite interesting that it stands out to me as a really significant protocol development. And when you go in and detail and look at it, four years to end outcome from a mature functioning system perhaps is not unreasonable when you think about the risks and the burdens and the societal no. needs in a new protocol development. I think people like me who are judging based on past behavior in the 90s, four years is too slow, I think we have to think about the message you're bringing. Four years may actually be a realistic assessment of risk, reward, and burden. In the case of Quick, I mean, uh, one thing that I found fascinating is a return to the 90s by the uh, interaction between running code and consensus and protocols. I mean, from uh, 2017 to 2021, there were something like 20 revisions of Quick about, you know, more drafts than that, but maybe 20 big revisions. Some of them quite big, some of them changing uh, the way we number packets, for example. And they were tested. And we had these folks developing prototypes at a standard there were a dozen and a half of those prototypes being tested. Every revision, you would have like at least a dozen trials and then everybody had deficit, et cetera. So th- it was really, I mean, a collaborative effort in the industry. That, that was great. But let's come back at the switch between 98 and 2008. Hmm. What happened in between? Well, in my mind, I see two things that did happen. One is the dot-com crash, which is basically the industry getting a reset and a lot of the small thing getting absorbed, etc. I mean, the industry restructure around that. And I was working at Microsoft then, and the one big thing that happened is in 2003 was a security reset at Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft was still working like in the 90s and putting out uh, Windows 2000. Windows 2000 was quite good from an engineering point of view. And then, but it was basically an enterprise operating system which was working very well, but working very well inside the enterprise. And then uh, Microsoft takes Windows 2000, graphs a user-friendly UI on it, and gets out with Windows XP that is basically uh, aiming at everybody. And what happened in the couple of years after it comes out is massive security issues. Massive security issues because something that was state-of-the-art, I mean, Windows 2000 was pretty much state-of-the-art in terms of, uh, could say that Unix might have been better, but it really was kind of the same. It was 
Pretty it's much. a different oh. design philosophy, but it would be a mistake to say one is better than the other. They yeah. had different architects and different sense of goal. There are aspects of the Windows API and ABI and the behavior of Windows shared libraries, which I absolutely wish had been included in the Unix model. The self-introspection in the code base is remarkable. So to critique Microsoft as somehow worse than Unix, I think is a huge mistake. In our own domain, there are days people mutter about the initial window size choices that Microsoft made in the TCP IP stack and the effect that they had on global networking. To some extent, Windows 2000 might have been the convergence of network and operating system into a single functional cohesive whole in some ways. But yeah, Windows XP inherited a lot of that and came out with these high-level networking capabilities. You could share files, you could do internet, you could run a server, you could do a lot of things. And guess what? That's exactly what caused surface security issues. Yeah. I mean, there would be, I mean, some coding mistakes somewhere and some guys finds it and bingo, you have a worm coming on the internet and infecting 100 million machines. Yeah. As long as protocols remained somewhat specialist and then there were very tight bindings to limited context applications, I think we'd buried our heads in the sand around the security risk. But when a single architecture cohesive framework for sharing everything, printers, file systems, audio clips, complex multimedia mail, when that emerges in consumer space, the opportunistic risks are an order of magnitude higher. And that's why Microsoft took about three years to revise all the code base and, and put out, I mean, service tags so, and whatever. But the same thing happened in the IETF. We that's became the- much more conscious of the burden in society of insecure protocol behavior. Exactly. And that, then you get that and you get all this push to be careful about security. And then, Later than that, you get the, the Snowden revelation and the, the fact that people are actually hard to get at your bids, and we have to protect that. And so it's harder to design a product. I mean, uh, you know, if you start building a widget and you sell a million of it, that's great. But if you sell a hundred million of it or a million of it, and you have your reliability, it says 99.9%. That looks good, 99.9% will be it. But if you have a billion folks using it, that means that you're leaving a million of them having problems. And you're going to hear about it. A million calls on help desk, a million return to manufacturer, a million unhappy life cycle chains. Or a million machine in the botnet. Yeah, that's a lot. And so, I mean, at that scale, you have to be that careful. So the two stories you bring here are an economic imperative that we underwent a very sudden contraction because of the crash that made us much more focally aware of the cost-benefit ratio of changing things. People had moved from rapid development, rapid deployment growth to a sense we need to leverage the maximum benefit from the investment side of making things happen in parallel with 
we now have sufficient scale that the security burdens of what we do have moved perhaps one or even two step functions higher in risk, which means there is less willingness to make radical change purely for interest, much more concern on being focused on benefit and more cost side. Check this for the security risks. Consider the security properly. Do not have to come back and reappraise. Yes. And now the next thing that is happening, I mean, is the security is still there, but you also are very concerned about privacy. And privacy has a bunch of issues which ties to the economics of financing application with advertisement and, and all that. Yeah, the socialization of it's free in some dimensions implicitly means somebody has to have a point of extraction of some value from that freemium service. It's not, yeah. it's not possible without the inclusion of the things we don't want to have. So we've kind of made a very interesting social dynamic here. The protocols need to preserve our privacy. The systems need to provide the financial incentives if they're going to remain free. I'm not sure they need to remain free. I'm, I'm not opposed to, uh, I mean, uh, I pay for my uh, servers that I put up. I mean, it's like. Yeah, I do too. But we have rather allowed the belief of free at scale to dominate. Yeah. So a question that interests me is whether you have been able to do any comparative aspect of standards development in other domains. Because the IETF is not the only standards body. We have the 3GPP and we have the IEEE and, of course, we have the ITU as well. So is there the potential for a similar model to be applied? I have not a great insight on how the ITU or the IEEE operates. I've worked with the ITU and the IEEE, but I've never been inside the working groups, inside the machinery. So... I suppose they could do the same thing. I suppose it'd be nice to look at what causes delays. Delays are always trade-off, so you have to know if you want to have a shorter delays what you are trading off, which is also something you want to see. So it's, it's interesting. In any case, what I did with this little work was to present data and with two ideas there. First, the data themselves are usable. You can interpret them. I, I was careful to, when I presented the data, to not mix what I thought was happening, which is commentary, with the actual data. And I think that whenever you do measurements, you have to be very, very careful of that. So you have made available a neutral data set that is not colored by your interpretations of behavior. It's just yes. the facts. Yes, you want that. You want that, and you want that whenever you do measurements, whatever you do. Because otherwise, it's a very uh, easy to go in something like a motivated measurement. Yeah, and it goes to reproducibility as well. I think in a matter like this, people need to understand how they could get to the similar functional facts that you uncovered and see if there are differences. What if you ran them a different way and got different documents? How much variance is there across the field? I must say the sampling really interests me. Is 20 enough? It was limited by the notebook approach. But it's also 
there are some disagreements. What is an adequate sample set against the pool? Personally, I think 20 is more than enough. But I wonder if some people feel 100 would have been better. You could. I mean, if you want to go to 100, I mean, you could even go to 1,000 or whatever. You could go to every RFC. But to go to every RFC, you would have to build a systematic data collection system. You would have to basically run a server that goes every month and look at whatever has changed and update your data and do that. That's possible. You can you you could, but I would ask to what benefit? Because it feels to me that from your work, you've been able to inform the IAB and, in particular, let the IAB know that prior beliefs that were coming into the system about points of delay were not actually applicable and perhaps have misunderstood. And more to the point, there has not been a sudden cliff and a sudden loss of efficiency. There actually is a consistency behind our rate of production, yeah. which in part is a reflection of the complexity of modern internet life. Yes. And we have the data, so I think still that if someone wanted to automate this measurement and produce some kind of dashboard, they could. I mean, they could take uh, the, uh, the example I did and say, okay, can I write uh, a piece of Python that goes into the uh, database and collects the data and, and does that? And they probably could do that. I mean, it's not... Uh, I think as an individual author who has watched the fate of my documents go through process, there is potential for this to be interesting because if you want to become what we would colloquially call the squeaky wheel, you really need a basis to believe you are getting some kind of less than satisfactory outcome. If on aggregate, the pace of transition through publication cycle is measured in this time frame, it would not be beneficial to complain if you are only two months in of an expectation of six months of delivery. On the other hand, if you're at eight months, you might want to ask questions. Why is my document taking so long through this process? So the other half of that is perhaps it says something about your document more than it says about the process in the wide. No, if we look at the actual differences, you're looking at the tail of the process there, I mean, the publication yeah. and things like that. The actual differences at the tail of the process, there are two known sources of uh, variations. One are the document editors and authors themselves. I mean, there are cases in which the authors don't agree with each other or mm. basically I mean some of one is in vacation or there are different time scales or they and it take a long time when someone asks a question say do you really mean this on uh, page two to actually come with an answer and different authors have different reactions there and it's something that you can control I mean if you are working with your co-author, you can establish uh, good working practices with your co-authors, and you will see your delay shrink, specifically the authority delays. You could really shrink it from two months to a week. Not that hard. Mm -hmm. So that's one. The other big source of delay at the tail of the process are the trains. That working groups sometimes take a big project, like say WebRTC, 
And that project involves publishing six or seven RFCs at the same time. Yeah. They are published at the same time because they cite each other. So they become a fate-sharing project stop point that they are blocked waiting for that last element to come into fruition. And typically when you have a point like that, first it creates a spike in volume in the RFC editor or in everybody actually. Everybody has to, all the sessions, they have to work at the same time. You have this big spike of that big train of stuff is coming. You now have to review a thousand pages of standards or you have to copy edit them, or you have to do that. That's a lot. Plus the fact that, oh, and by the way, the last wagon is not there yet. And everybody waits for them. That's the other thing that is known to create big delays at the tail of the process. But I maintain that most of the delay arrive in the early stages, in the, in the working group stage. I believe that delay is unfixable is the wrong word, but is the central problem why a working group exists. Unless you argue that because of the sheer amount of work in a working group, ideas do not have time to converge, I would say if it has time in a working group, it's a fairly direct statement. The idea has complexities and there are divided views on what the complexities mean. Yes. But that's an opinion. I'd like to see a measurement, like a comparison of different working groups. For example, different working groups might have different practices. Yes. If you want to do something big, like change the TLS from 1.2 to 1.3, which was effectively adding a whole lot of new securities and new protections, you are going to have a long time. Quick is an extreme example of that. Yeah. There are noises in DNS about whether it is time to re-enter DNSSEC and view it as a first approximation that needs to be replaced. I would not expect a replaced DNSSEC conversation to terminate in four years. I think it would take longer. That's true. Uh, What can be faster are basically more focused development. If you do something like, I want to do, say, improve mobility for quick or uh, do something like quick multi-pass on top of quick or something like that. That's much more focused. And there, the delays come to the practices of the working group. Yes, you can have uh, issues that basically the thing is complex. You need to have a dozen prototypes done. You need to look at the results. It takes time. Yes, that's a good reason. The bad reason is, oh, we are driven by publication cycles. So we are going to have big spike of activities just before the ATF meetings and a big lug in between. That will be the bad reason. Three months of delay for a week of work and then three months of delay. Yes. I mean, that's a possibility. And I don't know how much of that is the case. I believe that we have enough data in the databases to see whether that's happening or not. Yes. It takes some thinking to come up with an effective measure. I have a feeling it's the digit changes in the drafts and the date of change. If you can show that the digit changes cluster coming up to IETF draft closure rather than in the interval between 
post-IETF and the next draft closure. That would be a signal that people are rushing their work to reach the boundary point for discussion, and then they're coasting afterwards. So perhaps it's a rate of change signal, and you're looking for a derivative on that. Maybe. And you have to also consider that people are working on GitHub. Ah, uh, yes. There's been some conversation that it is proving difficult to understand the tension between different modalities of document uh, production. What is or is not canonical state? What is an accepted change? So if people are working on GitHub, what you might see is a constant stream of changes that are happening in the GitHub repo. And then you get the draft published just before the meeting as a snapshot of what did happen. So yeah. it's not necessarily an indication that people were lazy. It's just an indication they were busy elsewhere yeah. and then snapshotting. Yeah, so it's very difficult to know how to measure. I think I am falling into the sin, which I often make, of hypothesizing yeah. belief. You are being much more careful to say, no, it is beneficial to think about measuring here, but it's not necessarily obvious yet what is the way to measure. If I was to do that, I'd like to get an idea of measuring the activity in general. Measuring the activity in general, and you can see that by, say, the uh, amount of email exchange on the mailing list, uh, the amount of uh, issues yeah. and push requests on the GitHub depot. Yeah. Yes, the publication of drafts too, the amount of people participating in interim meetings and things like that. They, they, they might be ways. But my, yeah. my, my main uh, concern there is that I'd really like uh, to see other people doing that too. I am not uh, necessarily going to uh, make a career of doing measurement of the IETF. No, I think that there are other things worthy of time. But I must say, Christian, it has been fascinating talking to you. I noticed this work of yours some years ago and mailed you casually, expressing interest. I'm delighted you made some time to talk to us about what you've been doing. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much, George. And I look forward to reading some future ideas from your activity. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.